Flint that I've known for a long time who's great, and we're happy to have him and Kathy with us. Oh, and, oh, and the kids are dismissed to Children's Church, grades, four, uh, ages four through second grade. Run, children, run. I mean, not you, Chad. Uh, great to be with you again this uh, this Sunday morning. It was great to be with you last week. Um, I, I am currently working with the Mid-South Church Planting Network as their Catalyst or Ministry Coordinator in Redeemer long ago, as well as the church I planted in Hernando and about five other churches in the metro Memphis area started what we call the Mid-South Church Planting and Network. And in 2013, we actually expanded our network through all of Mississippi uh, the rest of Arkansas is also down in Baton Rouge to the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. So it's a huge geographical area. And my job, my privilege, responsibility is to encourage churches like yours to keep on planting churches and supporting church planting movements. A simple statistic is, is this that I shared with some of your missions team committee last week was every year there's about 4,000 4, churches planted across our country of every kind of stripe of denomination and religious organization. Of those 4,000, there's also about 3,700 churches every year that shut down. The PCA has been planting churches for the last 45 years on a range of 50 to 60 churches a year, and we shut down about 30 to 35 churches. So if you just think about population growth here in Metro Memphis or across our country, there is a great need to plant many kinds of churches like this particular church that God has richly blessed. And there are eight active church plants going on in our network. So I'm called to recruit guys, encourage churches, raise funds, identify new places to plant. And so I appreciate your prayers and thank you for being one of the original members of the Mid-South Church Planting Network. <coughs> I'm so encouraged where you guys are. So last week <coughs> after church, I was able to take my family to Hattie B's and have lunch there uh, on a beautiful day. And then Friday night, we ate it uh, together at at tsunami and and driving through this area thinking what a what a privilege you guys have what an awesome place and I, and I say that hopefully in a meaningful not just general awesome kind of way right God has strategically placed you here on Cooper Street for a reason that he is calling you to be salt and light and to be ministers of grace I loved your your prayer of confession about being and thinking about being missional being outward facing loving this community, the coffee shop across the street, and all the shops and businesses in between. What a great, what a great opportunity God has entrusted you with the gospel. And so I just, I'm just blessed and celebrate where God has you uh, strategically placed in Memphis to make much of Jesus and to love his kingship over your life and over the lives of those in Memphis. I wonder, though, what many would say about the church at large there's, there's so much, right? What, what would be some of the words that maybe people would use about the church? Surely they would say, yeah, pretty controversial group, depending what stripe of church you are. Seem to have a lot of divisions. I know for one thing that in, in church there, there, are, there are a lot of hypocrites. Yes, we're all hypocrites. A lot of hypocrites out there too, right? Uh, and as we think about uh, of the church, we might even say, well, the church has been a part of serving, and, and we are one of the most generous cities in the country still of giving resources away to the poor and seeking to bless the poor in our community. There's a lot more work to be done, but 
But I wonder if the word compassion would come across the radar screen of somebody's mind that would come out of their mouths. Do the, would people say that the church is a compassionate church, which is centrally what we're going to talk about today? And, and, and compassion is a big deal to Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. See, his whole theme in his gospel is to pick up the, the vignettes, the stories, the pictures of how Jesus himself, the king of all kings, lord of all lords, was a deeply compassionate human who was also fully God, fully man, fully God. Last week we talked a little about God's compassion. We'll pick up on that theme again. We looked at God's compassion and blessing Abram and Sarai even in the midst of their baby wars and bad decisions and how he was still going to bless Hagar and Ishmael because God is a compassionate God. And we are to be a compassionate people like our God. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 23, <clears throat> there's very similar, similar language that you have here in 935. Excuse me. <clears throat> and it is this, that Jesus' ministry was always on the move. If you read in this text in 423, back where Matthew hems in chapters 4 to 9 as this movement of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and the healings and the teachings of Jesus, you begin to see that Jesus is leaning in against darkness and unbelief to bring the good news of the kingdom of God, going to every city and synagogue and township proclaiming the kingdom has come, a kingdom which drives out darkness and unbelief. We find out what some of that looks like back in 423, that when he was healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease, there were blind children, there were lame children, there were children who died. There were friends who died like Lazarus we know in John's gospel, right? And when Jesus came, he both preached this kingdom and he demonstrated the power of the kingdom to alleviate, to wipe away the maladies of sin and brokenness in the world. Now think about that for a moment. If your child was blind from birth, never able to identify a color, see a beautiful sunset or sunrise, how much of an impact would Jesus healing your daughter or your son's eyes and making them see? How, what would that do to you? What about your son or daughter who never could walk? Had to be dragged around on the mat as we know the story of friends dragging around a friend on a mat to meet Jesus and lowering him through a house. What if your son or daughter were lame, never able to walk, and then they meet Jesus? And they're able to walk. And not just walk, they're able to dance and sing and celebrate that they were able to walk. See, we would, it, 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 as parents and grandparents, that resonates, right? That, that hits us. If the impact of the kingdom of God means that he is coming to deal with every kind of sickness and every kind of disease, that gives us hope. And that hope was manifested that Jesus came down as God's compassion to, to usher in a kingdom that would drive back darkness and promise if not in this life, to heal every kind of disease and sickness, surely in the next life he promises to do that as our great king. So God's compassion is our focus again this morning and how the gospel is good news that God really cares about people like you and me. Let's take up and read in Matthew chapter 9, 35, and we're going to read through 10, 1. I see just those two verses were were uh, printed. Apparently, I must have left a hyphen out. Um, so I will read 9.35 to 10.1. Hear the word of the Lord as it reveals the beauty of 
of Jesus' compassion. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited or harassed and helpless, your translation might say, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray, call upon the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The hope and the gospel of compassion for us. Let's pray that God would bless his word to us. Father, we are thankful that the scriptures come alive because they speak to us who are alive this morning. People who are stressed and distressed and dispirited. We do feel so helpless in our own skin, in our own community, in our own families. But we pray that you would open our eyes, enlarge our hearts to waken cold hearts and make them responsive to this notion that you love us, that you have demonstrated compassion and are doing that again as we gather, as we pray, as we sing, as we give, and as we celebrate what it means to be the family of God around your word and around your table. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So long before green eggs and ham and long before green beer and beer festivals in March, there was a man named St. Patrick He was just Patrick back in the day. Sainthood came later on. St. Patrick was a young teenager walking along the shores of Great Britain somewhere. They're not exactly sure, but we do know this. Irish pirates captured him, enslaved him, and took took him back to to the people of Ireland, the Celtic people, a people who worshipped all kinds of strange gods and often offered up their children as sacrifices to those strange and crazy gods they worshipped. And in that time, St. Patrick was given the charge of taking care of pigs and sheep. He was a shepherd boy. And for seven years in his enslavement there, that's what he did. Pigs and sheep, day and night, responsible uh, for the food and the taking care of of those people. And in that time, God began to stir in his heart, began to call him and awaken him to his need of Christ Somehow he was able to escape and he made it back to motherland and he was able to go and be trained as a priest. And his first call after his priesthood, his first call, his first desire was to go back to the people of Ireland, to the Celtic people, to minister this gospel of grace that he had received and wanted to go back and preach. Now what in the world? (laughs) What in the world would compel a guy like that? who had been enslaved by the people, who had seen all kinds of wicked things that they had done to their people, to their own children, what would compel him to go back to those people? Well, surely it was the compassion of God that he had sensed in his own life where God began to stir in him and show him his compassion even while he was serving as a slave amongst those pagan people. One of the famous quotes of St. Patrick is this, The Lord is greater than all. I have said enough. <laughs> now, you may be saying that about a preacher this morning, but hopefully we're saying that. 
do we really believe that the Lord is greater than all, greater than all of our sins, greater than all the barriers and problems that we faced? I think we need to see once again the optimism and compassion that Jesus teaches and demonstrates in his own life. That we're reminded in this passage that we have been given power and authority in God's kingdom to be compassionate just like Jesus. To be compassionate just like him. And as sons and daughters, we are called a kingdom of priests together. We have the privilege of being disciples who have received compassion. So indeed we might show that compassion to those around us. To those that maybe have rejected us time and time again. So if, if the church won't celebrate God's compassion, well, who's going to do it? Right? If, we're, if we're not excited that God shows pity, with all his power and authority, he shows pity and grace and mercy and goodness to us, what do we have left to celebrate if we don't celebrate that? So I want you to see this morning that we as the church must, are called, are missionally given the compassion of Jesus for the sake of this world. And we see the compassion of Jesus in two ways this morning, pretty simply. The first, I want us to look at that, that Jesus' compassion, right, gives the church spiritual eyes. Jesus' compassion, our call to be a compassionate people, gives us spiritual eyes. And the second thing I want us to see simply in this passage is that Jesus' compassion gives us a spiritual direction. It gives us, it gives us a eyes, it gives us vision, but it also gives us wisdom and a direction in going and serving the people we're called to minister to. So let's look at really th verses 35 and 36 where we see how Jesus' compassion gives us or has spiritual eyes. We are told in this text, right, as Jesus was going about all, all his very busy work, healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease, he slows down to see what's really going on. Verse 36 tells us, seeing the people, right? In the midst of his busy, busy life in ministry, Jesus comes to a standstill and sees the people. What does he see? The text tells us that he sees the people that are in distress. And what are they in distress about? They're in distress about sin. What sin has done to the image of God. Jesus sees how sin has wreaked havoc in every area of the lives of his people, his disciples. The way they think, the way they feel, the way they live. Sin has affected every aspect and all aspects of our humanity. And sin, sin is always a disorienting reality. It disorients reality, it disorients us towards reality, right? Sin is a power. It's not simply, man, I messed up today. It, is, it could be that. But sin is a power that Jesus saw at work in people that was destroying them, that was discouraging them. And so he addresses with his eyes of compassion the distress that sin has caused in their life that causes is caused in our life, right? Sin creates all kinds of chaos. It creates all kinds of ruin. Because sin always leads us away from God and away from others. Sin always leads us to isolation. It never moves us towards community, and it never moves us towards God. It's God who has to keep moving towards us. And so sin is a power that must be overcome by a greater power, and that power which we find in the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus sees the distress that sin causes, but he also sees us dispirited people. And what were they dispirited about? They were dispirited about religion. 
I mean, you're living in one of the most religious cultures. We're a very religious culture, even in our day, even in Memphis. And in this religious culture, in this place, there were people who were absolutely worn out by their religion. And the religious elite and teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, often referred to in the Bible, were wearing their people out, adding laws upon laws, sacrifices upon sacrifices, to not only pad their pockets, but to control the people and the masses. They were doing that through the power of religion. And religion always disappoints. It always discourages us because our practices never add up. The people of Israel were plagued by religious and relig- religious class and relig- religiosity. But Jesus had compassion on them. He saw them, what does the text tell? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. The entire Old Testament had been saying there is one coming who will be a shepherd like no other for his people. David, though being a good shepherd, was not the shepherd the Bible was looking for. This shepherd would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he looks at those people, he sees that they need him. They need his message, and they need his power, and they need his grace. So Jesus sees a people who are distressed and dispirited, and he comes to them in the midst of their spiritual ruin and spiritual disaster because their religious practices were never enough, that he was coming to bring them the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And this is the hope we have this morning. And lastly, and finally in this heading that Jesus gives us spiritual eyes, Jesus sees a people with with true compassion, right? He actually sees people the way they are. We see only the outside, but Jesus could read the mind at some times, and he could see the heart, and he knew what was going on in the hearts of those who were for him and those who were against him. And so Jesus looks at these people, and he has true compassion because his compassion leads him and us to another place. You see, Jesus' compassion is ultimately leaning forward and pushing towards the cross. The Bible says that Jesus set his face like flint. He was like a warrior, a ball player headed towards the goal ahead. And the goal was to suffer and to die for his people so that they would ultimately experience true compassion, which he demonstrated and he taught. He didn't just simply say, be warm and be filled. I understand all your problems and your feelings. He said, no, I go to this place. I'm going to the place to suffer and die for you and for me. And it was right at that place where Jesus in his humanity would become the most distressed and dispirited human who has ever walked the face of the earth. Right? That's what the Bible is teaching us. When Jesus goes there, he's identifying with the brokenness of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, right? And he also knew the nature of how religion could not deliver. And he died and kept every jot and tittle of the law in perfect righteousness so that we would have a righteousness of our own. I would encourage you to read some medical journals like the Journal of American Medicine Association. That, there's, a, there's a single space, seven pages It's about the physical realities, the physiological effects of crucifixion. I know it's summer. Why would we talk about it? We've done Easter already. No, the cross is about God's people today. And knowing and remembering how Jesus showed us compassion is knowing how he died in his passion for you 
and for me, right? Because Jesus didn't just suffer that physical pain. He suffered the wrath and curse that was due to sin, our sin, our unbelief, our failed religious practices. And what's striking, even while Jesus is hanging on a cross, you remember the story, don't you? With all of that pain, with him crying out in agony before his father, he still had the clarity of mind in one last deed and act to show compassion. Do you remember who that was to? It was to his mother Mary. His final words, his final hanging upon the cross, he says to his, his mother Mary, Mary, this is your son, John. John, this is your mother, my mother, Mary. In the midst of all of that, Jesus is still taking care of his family and showing a deep, deep love and compassion. He was the ultimate kinsman redeemer that Ruth, the book of Ruth is really about, right? He's the ultimate Boaz. He's the great savior and redeemer of his people. Hence, you have this in your name. Now, if you and I grow cold, right, when our hearts grow cold or hardened, why is that? What is it? Well, we know there's a lot of things that cause it. But how do we undo that? How do we soften our own hearts? How do we begin to think about it? What is our responsibility? And I think if you look at this text and you begin to see what the disciples end up doing and living for in days ahead, they begin to realize that Jesus was having compassion for them. And so the question for you this morning is, do you know Jesus' compassion? Because that's the only thing that will warm your cold, hard hearts in the travails and difficulties of life and with people and with jobs and with facing death and with facing sickness. You see, Jesus comes to show us compassion so that we would be compassionate. May it be that Redeemer Prez is known to be a filled with compassionate people because their hearts have been warmed with God's compassion, by his grace, by his mercy that comes and shows us that he is with us and that he is for us. The second thing, right, is not only compassion gives us kind of spiritual eyes to see like Jesus, and to look to him and to believe that he is enough for us, but secondly, really, compassion has spiritual direction in 37, uh, verse 37 to 10.1. And it's pretty simple. Jesus calls his disciples to pray. He calls them, if they're to be a people who have known the compassion of God, they know the gospel, if they receive the kingdom, then they're to be a people who go about praying. And he gives them the hope of their prayers. Right, because he gives them, he gives them his eyes, not their own. When you and I pray, we might close our eyes and fall asleep, or our minds wander in a million different directions. But but when Jesus prays, when he calls us to pray, he has a vision. And the vision is this: when he looks out, he sees nothing but opportunity. <laughs> he, he is he's filled with, I like to say, divine optimism, because he is the king. And when the king looks out, he says, there is a harvest. There are people, my people, lost sheep that are my sheep, everywhere around you. And I see them. Do you see them? Do we see them? And so he calls his people to pray with this kind of hope and optimism because of who we are. Because he's our king and he is our savior and we are called to love and serve him. You know, we look out and we go, ah, jeez, I don't know. I've invited that church. I've invited those people to church. I can't tell you how many times. Or, or I've tried to have that. And that neighbor, 
We almost got in a fist fight last month. I don't know if I can talk to that neighbor again, or I'm going to have to call the police to get a restraining order. How am I going? When we look out, we don't have much optimism. We live in a very cynical world, don't we? And that's why we need the eyes of Jesus. He calls those disciples to pray with urgency for the sake of his kingdom, which is the good news. It's a command to pray. It's a command to pray with his optimism, with the hope of his joy at work in their hearts, because there is a ripe harvest. So the simple direction is this. We're called to pray. And praying is never easy. It's the hardest thing we do in the Christian life, and yet it is the very thing that keeps us alive in the Christian life, to know a father who has compassion upon us as his children. So Jesus calls us to pray, but he also calls us to go. It's interesting in chapter 10, verse uh, (laughs) 1, you know, we all like the, yeah, I should pray. And I like to pray for missionaries. And I'm going to pray for you, Clint, because I know you're doing missional stuff and traveling around doing whatever you're doing. But, you know, I'm going to pray about that. But I ain't going anywhere. I'm going to stay right here. I hope somebody else will raise up that person to go because that just sounds complicated. But that's not the picture. The picture he tells his disciples to pray. And by the way, in verse 1, you're going. You're going with my authority. You're going with my power. And I'm going to use you to show the beauty and the power of my kingdom. So he just doesn't leave us on the sidelines praying. He actually puts us in the game and says, you are going. Now, where is the going? Matthew 28 tells us the going is this. Wherever you go, as you go, you will be making disciples and discipling and baptizing in my name, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our name, we might say. Three persons, one God. And he reminds them and encourages them that I will be with you even until the end of the age. I will be with you. So you don't have to fear. I will always be with you as I send you out. And so the beautiful thing I think we can kind of wrap our minds around is wherever God places you, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, wherever he calls you, you can guarantee, you can bet your bottom dollar that there are people around you who belong to Jesus. They belong to him. And the question is, will we talk about Jesus? Will we love other people compassionately like Jesus? Will we go to those people And show them the compassion and beauty of Christ? Will we become foot washers of those who are filthy in our eyes? Will we stoop and love others around us? You see, if if a single person, I've seen this in my own family, and I've seen it in other people's families, and I've seen it in other people's churches. When one person, and I'm talking one, when one person comes to Christ and becomes a new creature, And experiences the joy and the hope of the kingdom of God in their hearts. What do those people become? They become a catalyst. They become the people that God uses to change whole cities and towns. Read John 4. The woman at the well who says, I know a man who knows everything about me. And I love him. And the whole city went out to meet him. They liked what she was saying, but they wanted to see it for themselves. You see, when... We see the gospel at work in other people's lives. It's a huge catalyst and a celebration for the church. Do we want to see lost sheep found and come and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? You know the parable, right? The parable of uh, the good shepherd who goes out and finds the one lost sheep, right? The the parable tells us that, that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and pursue the one and, you know, I was never good at accounting at Ole Miss, still not good with math now. But I'm like, hey, 99 is pretty good. I mean, we got 99. 
And from a business perspective, this is a, it's a net loss of one, but, you know, all in all, I'm an American, and that's a win column. I just take that. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus himself, that good shepherd, leaves the 99 to go and find the one lost sheep. And why does he do that? Because he values that one so much. And when he goes to receive the one who was lost, guess what he does? He proves the value and the eternal worth of the 99, right? The, the, the one lost is really about the, the church, the community of God. It's a beautiful picture that he was willing to go to such lengths to make sure none of his sheep would be lost. And that's why you and I give to global missions, and that's why we serve in local missions, because global and local missions together catalyzes our hope and belief in the gospel as we pray and as we go. So wherever you go, you can be assured that there are people that Christ is calling to himself. And finally, I would say this, right? We have this calling to pray and to go together in Christ. That's just not just for the world out there. You know, it's for y'all sitting in these seats right now. I mean, are you foolish enough to think that you can work out your marriage by yourself without praying and meeting with other Christians? Have you tried parenting on your own and reading enough books? That doesn't work out so well. So this praying and going is a part of how we commune and live together as the church. And when the church catches that kind of vision and has this kind of compassion, it's infectious to those who come within the walls of our church. We can't do life alone. We can't do life apart from the church and apart from the families that are around us. Our praying to go is because we need grace. And we need grace that is manifested and given through each other. So that when we become distressed and dispirited, there are people who are cheering us on and saying, No, you're not stupid. But life is hard, and the Lord is good, and I'll pray for you, and I will meet you, and I will come over, and we will speak and talk about the compassion of Jesus. Isn't that our calling as the church, to be on mission together with him until he returns, even while he says he will be with us until the end of the very age? Let me end with this story. It's a story about a youth pastor who goes to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As he heads to Philadelphia, his calling is to work with inner city young men, to disciple them, to meet them, to play basketball, to be a part of their lives. And as he goes into that community, he realizes there's all kinds of difficulties. And after serving a year or two there, he becomes deeply discouraged because many of the men, young men, he was ministering to became victims of violence. They were killed on the streets. They were locked up in prisons. They were moved away. They were never seen again. And he got very, very discouraged and tired. He had heard of one of his young uh, disciples, one of the people he was trying to disciple, that he lived in this government housing project. And so he was determined to go find this young man. He was not going to let another one get away, we might say. As he goes, in, goes up into the government housing and busts through the door and knocks and busts through the door and says, hey, I'm looking for so-and-so, he realizes that he's just stepped into basically a drug dealer's apartment. Guns, drugs, everywhere around him. And with the clarity of thought at that moment, he just said, I just want to know if any of God's children are up in this place. Are any of God's children up in this place? 
or any of Christ's children in this place. He went on to have a ministry to many of those young men who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was willing to go. Because he wanted to show the compassion of Jesus. I think that youth pastor has a lot to teach us, right? Who and where are the lost sheep and where are they to be found? We must leave the walls of our homes and our churches to go out and find them. This was true of my salvation, and I'm sure it's true of you. Many of you never darkened the doors of a church until you met the compassion in the person of Jesus. That one who's led you and pointed you to Christ. You know, sheep by their nature <laughs> don't just come in. Sheep have to be called out. They have to be pursued. And they have to be pursued by a shepherd whose name is the Lord Jesus. And who calls us to be under shepherds of his grace and compassion. St. Patrick was indeed a shepherd and he has given attribution to this wonderful quote saying this, and you've heard it surely before, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, and Christ above me. Surely we who claim Christ in his compassion, his followers are called to demonstrate the gospel of his compassion. Christ in us. May God give us the grace to see his compassion and go out into the world with optimism and joy because we've met him and we know his love for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. <laughs> we are so thankful that you, you let your son leave to come. That you, Lord Jesus, are pictured as the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and find the one. And oh, how thankful. I am the one, one of those ones. And I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would enlarge them, that you would give us the strength and the courage to press forward and to press into people's lives who are distressed and dispirited, and that we would be a balm of compassion and hope. Because who is worthy of your compassion? No one. But for those who receive your compassion, we have become, by your grace, servants of mercy and hopers of eternal life. So help us today, and thank you for this table that reminds us that you feed us until we want no more.